Hello and welcome back to Little MB. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, give your likes to the podcast, and share the podcast when you like the episodes. For those who already do these things, I appreciate all the support. I'll tell you guys what, today is another amazing interview with an amazing woman by the name of Tisha Gillespie. She is visually impaired slash blind like so many of us out there. And her outlook is just so impressive. And it's it's not been something that she just developed over time. It's just been the way she's been her whole life. Ever since she was young and had an eye condition, she just had to deal with. I can tell you what, she dealt with it a lot better than I dealt with mine, for one. For two, she has not let it stop her from doing the things she enjoys doing, such as traveling. I mean, she's traveled all kinds of places and done so many amazing things. And she's also the host of a podcast entitled Not Your Average Goat. And let me tell you something. When I first came across uh, Miss Gillespie, I listened to her podcast and I immediately subscribed to it. So it's, it's a good podcast. She's great at interviews. She's an amazing speaker. And she carries this entire interview for the most part. I mean, just phenomenal young woman. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. So without further ado, here's Miss Gillespie. Well, hey, Hi, you... can you hear me? Yeah. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Well, a lot better than I was. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I saw oh. I saw your Facebook post. I haven't had a chance to listen to the episode yet, and I won't make you um I won't make you recount that since you don't want to do it 247 times. But um <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious I, I am curious to know um, you know, what's what's changed for you since Saturday in terms of like any mindset or anything like that. It's this is what's weird is since I got that those two stints put into that artery because the surgeon said it was the first time he's ever seen a legitimate case where a artery had 100% blockage and I was on blood pressure medicine but my blood pressure was still high and he he said that the blood pressure still being so high is why it was a blood was able to pass through that it was stretching the artery. And then two weeks ago, my doctor increased my blood pressure medicine. He doubled it. And they say that's what caused the heart attacks because it lowered my blood pressure enough to where it no longer had the power to like push through. And since that surgery, I feel better than I have in a minimum of four or five years. That's incredible. Because the th- the crazy thing is, I I love working out, but it's been a it's been a chore because I've had to mentally force myself to go work out. 
And now I'm having to force myself not to because I feel so good. Because I, mm-hmm. I I needed to wait a certain amount of time. I got to wait a certain amount of time before I can just start working out again. But oh yeah, you need to recover. Yeah, but it's. I mean, I I just feel so much better. It's not even funny. That's that's really incredible. That's great, Nick. Yeah, I'm definitely. I I couldn't believe. I mean, like when it happened, it's one of those weird things. It's like you you know what's happening. You know you're having a heart attack, but by the same token, you're sitting there there's no way I'm 43 years old. I work out for the most part. I eat clean, you know, it's just one of those weird things where it's like, there's, there's no way this is happening, (laughs) but it is. Yeah. Well, things like that, I think happen. Ken, I think that that proves that, you know, heart attacks, strokes, they don't really discriminate. Um, and it also shows, I think, that there are always those rare circumstances, um, which can be a little frightening, too, because you feel like, hey, if I do all these things, I'll never be a victim of this. But um, it seems that there are some of those cases where there's nothing you could have done. Well, that's he, he flat out said that it has to be genetic. And yeah. I found out since then, because the biological grandfather on my mom's side her and her half brothers referred to him as a sperm donor because that's all being a father he was. You know, he didn't know what being a father was. And mm-hmm. like since then, I found out my uncle Mark, he's been dealing with AFib, like some kind of irregular heart rhythm. And his brother, my uncle Steve, a few years ago, he had to get a couple stints put into his heart. And so, in in Steve, he's like six foot five, and his waist is twenty eight inches. So it's not like he's over; they're overweight and don't take care of themselves or anything like that. You know, they're they're in their early fifties, so it's ju- just kind of wild, like learning some of this stuff now, being like, "Oh wow, okay, well that explains that, I guess." <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're doing better. Um, and I don't know kind of what you're planning to do with your doctor, but, um, that seems a little suspicious that, um, you know, this happened right after your, your medicine doubled in dosage. Well, like I said, he had no way of knowing. I mean, he had no way of knowing I had any blockage and that's the thing. Like I consider it a blessing because I'll walk to the high school and I'm up in the middle of the night typically to take care of my dad. Mm -hmm. And so if I go for a walk, it's like at one in the morning and I'll go to the high school and walk and slash jog around the track. And I mean, hell, if it would have happened there, I'd be dead. That's very true. You know, if I, or if I went to the Philippines to visit my girlfriend, you know, the, between the medical care and everything there, there's a good chance I'd be dead. So, I mean, I consider it a blessing that it happened when it did. So yeah. I, def- I definitely don't hold anything against my doctor, my general practitioner, you know, because <clears throat> I mean, that's standard practice. I mean, you put somebody on blood pressure medicine and it's still high, you're going to increase it a little bit. So yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder though, if it'll give him your experience will give him a new perspective and maybe he'll suggest, Hey, like, let's do a sonogram before we decide to increase the medicine. I doubt it because yeah. you, you got to figure just statistically speaking, I'm a rarity, 
you know, for somebody my age to have a heart attack to begin with, you know, it's, that'd be a rarity. So I, I doubt that's really going to change his standard practice as far as blood pressure medicine is concerned. Well, it's great to talk to you finally. I think that we connected, oh my gosh, like over a year ago for the first time on Facebook. Yeah, something like that. And in the group that we're both members of and you had shared a podcast and I was like, I, I knew that too. You ought to come on. And since yeah. then, I've just kind of followed your posts, like you and your husband going to Europe and doing that kind of thing. And it's like, she's going to have an interesting story. I want to know what it is. <laughs> well, I'm here. To, I'm here to tell you it. Um, I do. I do love to travel. That's one of my biggest hobbies. And the pandemic was really, really tough from that perspective, because not only couldn't I travel, but I had had some pretty big trips planned that I had to cancel, um, including the one that I just finished taking. So we recently back in May, went to Portugal and walked 175 miles from Porto, Portugal, to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. And this truck, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar. Um, it's an ancient pilgrimage called Al Camino. And it was actually started back in like the year 800 or something as like a spiritual pilgrimage because Santiago is is St. James, um, a very renowned saint in the Catholicism religion. And so um, Catholics started doing this truck from different areas of Europe, including Spain, France, Italy, and walking to this ancient cathedral in Spain, where it was presumed that St. James was buried under. And over the, I guess, millennium, almost, um, it's kind of evolved into many things. So there are, of course, people who still do it for spiritual reasons, but there are people who do it um, to really kind of like immerse themselves in culture, for fitness, um, for like kind of meditation. There are a lot of people who will go and do this like by themselves actually, and just walk 100, 200 miles and really meditate and kind of think about themselves. And um, it can be really kind of healing from like a personal perspective as well. Um, I did it because I love the culture perspective. I also love walking is one of my favorite um, hobbies too, which kind of sounds a little bit weird, but um, I, lo I love I love taking long walks um, and not as long as the walks that I was taking on this trip. I think our longest day, our average day was about 16 miles, but our longest day was 23 miles. And that was pretty tough because on an average day, I don't walk that, that far. Um, I'll say kind of from like my longer walks, it'll be, I would say like, around five miles. Um, but I did it because I, I love to travel. I love to immerse in new cultures. Um, but I also really, really love food and wine. And oh my gosh, all the food along the trail, um, like going into these tiny little towns and villages, incredible. And I don't know if you are a seafood fan, Nick, or not, but uh, the some of the best seafood I've ever had. And I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Yeah, I've I've personally never been uh, the biggest fan of seafood itself. But then again, what we know as seafood here in the middle of this country is a little bit different than what you're going to find somewhere else, you know. So yeah. who knows? But yeah, long walks can definitely be meditative. 
you know, because that's one thing I loved about the walks I was talking about, going up to the high school and walking around the track and stuff like that, you know, because I'd cover anywhere just to and from the high school was three miles total. So, I mean, I was walking anywhere from five to seven miles when I'd do it. And it's just relaxing and meditative. So I definitely get that from that aspect of why people would go and do that. Yeah. And ironically, so when I went on the trip and also when I go on walks at home, um, I had been planning to, you know, listen to pod, catch up on podcast episodes, listen to an audio book, put on music. I did that a little bit, but I'll have to tell you 80% of the walk, I didn't have anything on. And that's just typically how I walk is because I kind of find my walks as a way to unplug and really be in nature. Um, even though around where I, where I live, um, it's, it's, it's a suburbs, but it's not rural. So there's still kind of like some traffic around. Um, and we do have probably about half a mile away. We do have like a couple of restaurants, so it's not, it's not urban, but even so I still will typically, even when I'm taking my pups for a walk, I don't put on anything because it's just my, it's my time to kind of think and just be unplugged for a few minutes yeah well i i agree 100 percent. there's been times where it's like okay let's put on a book or a podcast or something and within three minutes i'm shutting it off because it's I'd, I'd just rather be alone with my thoughts during that time yeah but i'm the same way when it comes to working out i cannot stand to listen to music when i'm working out it's mm. I don't know. For me, for me, in a way, it's kind of cheating because if you're listening to music that's pumping you up, that's what's keeping you going through the workout. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so, medit- it, once again, it's meditative when you're having to dig deep yourself because I don't know how many people know what kettlebell swings are, but one of the real good tough workouts is just 10 minutes. How many kettlebell swings can you do? And the day I gave myself a heart attack, I got 310, which was the best I'd ever done. And I mean, you got to dig pretty deep to like get that many kettlebell swings in 10 minutes, but I don't know. It's there's just something about it on the meditative side. That's an impressive number. Yeah. For me, like I said, it's just one of those things that I, I don't want I think it comes from when I was in wrestling, like growing up, because you didn't have, you weren't listening to music during tournaments or meets. So it's like, why would I listen to music when I'm training? You know, mm-hmm. but. I am one of those people. I I do need the music for my cardio when I'm doing weightlifting. That's different. Um, but if I'm running or on my elliptical, I definitely need the music to keep me going. So I'm, I guess I'm lazy from that perspective. <laughs> I well, it depends on when I'm if I'm out for a walk or something, it's different than if I'm on a treadmill. But the problem is with the treadmills, I just get so bored like walking, like walking, putting forth all that energy and not going anywhere. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I get so bored with that that even if I'm listening to music, I can't last more than an hour on a treadmill. But if I go out, if I like walk to the high school and around the track and back. I can be gone for two or three hours and not even be phased by it. So, yeah. but everybody, hey, everybody's different. So, that is a true statement. <laughs> so, uh, tell us about yourself. I mean, I know you're visually impaired. Are you completely blind? Are you just visually impaired? 
like so I do have some site. So I have retinitis pigmentosa, so RP. Um, I was born with it and my condition has not been progressive. So I was kind of born with the ultimate, I guess, state of whatever my condition will ever be, which is something that I've been most recently, um, as I've come to know other people's stories about them being born with nearly full sight and then just slowly after chunks of years losing vision, um, it's I, I feel very grateful for the way my condition is because it's something that I've always known and it's just always been a part of me and I've never really had to deal with the particular experience of knowing one thing and then having some feeling like something has been taken away from me, like feeling as if freedom or independence um, has been taken away from me because I've had to adapt since I was a baby, essentially. Um, but I do have some vision. I, I did, you know, I do know how to read Braille and that's what I did all throughout grade school. Um, today for my job and for kind of personal hobbies, I do rely on screen readers. So voiceover from my phone and then JAWS for my PC. Um, I, I, like most people with RP, just really have use of my peripheral vision and very little central vision. Um, for those to get a better understanding of what I can see, I will kind of put it in perspective is that if let's say there's a person about 20 feet ahead of me, I will be able to tell that there's a person 20 feet ahead of me, but I won't be able to say like, say for you, Nick, like say if you were 20 feet ahead of me, I would be able to say, see that there is a person, a body there. But it wouldn't be until you're probably about five feet ahead of me that I can say, oh, that person is Nick, because the detail is something that's very hard for me to see. And even with someone five feet away from me, I still can't tell eye color. Um, hair color sometimes can be a little difficult for me to um, be able to define as well. Um, I can't read small print. Um, Obviously, I can't drive because it's, um, you know, that's something that takes a lot of um, visual cues and awareness to be able to do. So um, that's nothing that I've been able to do before. So, um, but yeah, that's, I, I, I do for the most part in my familiar environment. So my home, walking around my neighborhood, um, I don't use a white cane because I'm just very familiar with the environments, but I've I've recently, um, over the recent years, have started actually using a white cane going into public areas when I don't have, like, say, someone like my husband with me. Because one, um, I found that it does make me feel a little bit more independent, especially if I'm going into, like, a brand new town, um, you know, going out to meet a friend for lunch or something, and I've never been to that part of town. Um, or I actually took a work, I, I've been taking a couple work trips as well. So I found it to be very helpful from that perspective for myself. But I've also found it equally to be helpful to make others around me more mindful because you're inevitably going to have that experience where if you're not walking with assistance or a cane and you're in an unfamiliar area or a very crowded area of like unintentionally bumping into someone and you're going to have those cases, hopefully not very many, where you're going to run into um, a quote unquote Karen who's just going to turn around and be like, watch where you're going. And you know, so it just, it, I think it just makes people a little bit more mindful of uh, my condition. And if, you know, I accidentally bump into you, I think people are a little bit more forgiving because they realize, oh, this person has a visual disability. 
Yeah, that's the original reason I started using a cane around my town because I I typically walked where the outer edge of my foot was on the edge of the sidewalk. And so that's how I kept a straight line when I'd walk places. But then I started carrying a cane, not for myself, but basically so other people, you know, because I'd have people honking, screaming at me because I'd like walk in front of their car at an intersection. And for the most part, I can hear cars, but you get those brand new little sports cars and they don't even mm-hmm. make a sound. <laughs> so it let them know. So, yeah, that's definitely beneficial. So your your husband, he can see all right, correct? Yeah, he has 2020 vision um, and probably like better than 2020 because he he actually got LASIK back in 2018 to fix um, like a minor issue with his eyes. But yeah, so um, yeah, he has 2020 vision, which, um, you know, so I I do. He is very helpful. We've been together, oh gosh, for almost going on 15 years. Um, but, you know, he's been very helpful in terms of, you know, being there to assist me, not just in terms of navigating, like if we're out together, um, but also, you know, being a person who's visually impaired, relying on assistive technology like screen readers um, over the years, and even sometimes today, there you run into issues with accessibility and things not being compliant. So he's also just been great from that perspective in helping me troubleshoot things while I'm working on my computer sometimes because, um, you know, it's it's difficult when you're trying to, you know, like check out for your Grubhub dinner and it's not working. And it's only because their website isn't compatible with your screen reader. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I've dealt with that just on my phone, you know, mm-hmm. so. Um, so what was it like growing up for you, like in schools? Uh, did you go to a regular public school? Did you go to a school for the blind? Because you said that you learned and used Braille through grade school and that. So uh, tell us about that. So I did go to public school my entire, um, I guess, K-12 career. <laughs> yeah. um, I was very, I was very, very lucky, I think, because... When I was starting first grade, there was a like a brand new school, I think that had only been around for like maybe five years. And it was ranked the number one school in my county. And it had a very good special education program or system in place. And so I was able to go there, even though it was outside of kind of, um, I guess, the, the parameters for where I would have been able to go to school. Um, I got an exception as did other students to be able to go to the school and the bus would come and pick me up from my home and you know it was like 30 30 minutes away and I was able to go there and I was you know in regular classrooms Um, but I would you know it's so long ago but I would say maybe maybe two hours two hours a week or so I would leave my classroom and I would go and work with the special educators. And I remember like being six years old and sitting at a computer with jaws on and just constantly typing ASDF, ASDF, JKL, JKL. Yeah, and I just yeah. remember, you know, for hours, just them teaching me how to type and the finger placement on the keyboard, um, teaching me how to read Braille. So for those who aren't familiar with Braille, Um, There's kind of two different formats. So when you kind of um, start with Braille, you know, you have all all the words spelled out. So if you have the word the, it's spelled out T-H-E in three different blocks. 
But as you kind of grow and you learn um, and you become more comfortable with using Braille, there's actually ways that um, the contractions can be used, kind of similar to like if you're thinking about like shorthand in print. Um, so then the word the becomes a single block. Um, and you know that like this one block, it means the word the. So like they would work with me to kind of teach me the letters and then kind of teach me, you know, now let's move on to contractions and let's figure out, um, you know, like let's figure out how to actually read graphs in Braille. Because, um, you know, that's something where actually um, you have what's called a Braille transcriber um, and they will actually have to take things like graphs for your math class and kind of make tactile versions of them so that you can read them. And there's kind of like different different things that you need to be aware of when it comes to, to numbers specifically um, when reading Braille. So I do remember, um, you know, spending, you know, a couple hours a week um, and it was me and it, there was actually another kid in my grade who was, um, who was fully blind, um, who um, actually went to school with me um, well, we went to the same schools from like first grade to, to 12th grade, but we were really never in the same classes. Um, but yeah, so I was really, I was really grateful from that perspective. And I don't know if it was all throughout Maryland where I grew up for the most part, um, but the school at least I went to for elementary school really gave me a really, really great foundation for teaching me the basics um, and teaching me how to use like a braille writer. Um, and then when I got to middle school, um, I was no longer kind of using like the ancient, like super loud Braille writer that kind of looks like a typewriter. But then there were kind of like computerized versions of Braille writers. So then they would teach me like a Braille and to... speak and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't use that today. Um, I haven't really used that since maybe my first year of college. But, um, you know, all of that was really, really great. And then kind of as I got into high school, you know, my my special education teachers actually acted almost, you know, they were kind of playing the role of special educator, but then they were also playing the role of guidance counselor and life coach in a way because they sit literally sat down with me and taught me, you know, if you want to write a professional email, like these, this is how you write an email to someone. Like this is how you do a greeting, this is how you do a subject line, this is how you close. This is how you look for colleges and evaluate different criteria. And they like literally went with me and help me apply using the common application, apply for all of my colleges, make sure that I had like all my forms for my financial aid filled out. Um, and I will say that this was even more special for me and just the value of it was just even more incredible because at home, I didn't really have that support from an education perspective. Um, like I don't think that even if I had been fully sated that my mom would have sat down with me and helped me go through colleges and figure out like which one I should go to, teach me how to write an email, um, you know, just teach me how to navigate different things like that. So um, yeah, I was, I have to say that I was very lucky because I know that there are certain, there are certain school systems that don't have a great special education program, or maybe sometimes they don't even have one. Um, so yeah, I was really grateful. Yeah, and to backtrack a little so people know what she's talking about, uh, there's grade one and grade two Braille. So grade one is where everything's spelled out, like she was saying, and then grade two is 162 contractions. So like the letters A, B by themselves is about. And to just give you an idea, my Bible is in grade two, and it is 17 volumes. 
so that tells you how big it is and how much space it takes up and that's why they created contractions because otherwise the bible would probably be 60 volumes at least just take up yeah just take up so much space so nick i'm impressed that you knew there was 162 contractions i did not know that yeah well the reason i know that is because when i had to leave my public school to go to peoria illinois to learn braille the rule was as soon as you learn braille you can come back which turned out to be a lie Mm. but i had good memorization skills because i went with just a couple months left in third grade and before fourth grade was even half over i had that memory i had it memorized so but yeah i I, I remember using like a Braille and speak in a Braille light, which a Braille light had a little Braille display with little mm-hmm. pins that popped up and stuff like that. And they were all right. I never got much use out of them myself. But then again, I didn't really pay attention in high school. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, <clears throat> it sounds like you had a decent school as far as the students were concerned. Cause like for me, I did not take Braille books with me. I did not take my Braille writer with me to class because the name of the game where I was is don't stand out. And that obviously would make you stand out. And so the philosophy I used starting in junior high through high school is if I can't memorize it, it's something I don't need to know. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what, though? I think that... um... So ironically, you don't see this very often, but my sister also has a variation of RP that's not as severe as mine. Um, She was the next sister right behind me. And so we spent a lot of time going to the same schools and she, she did not read Braille. Um, I, I'm still not entirely sure today was because she, uh, it was tough for her to pick it up or she just didn't want to, but she would rely on large print. And so she would actually use a device called a CCTV, yeah, which yeah. is almost kind of like for people who don't know, it's like a, it's like basically like a monitor that will, if you put, you put it like a piece of paper under the monitor and it'll like blow it up for you on the screen. Um, but in order to kind of take that, especially when you get to like middle school, high school, they put it on a little cart. And so you have to push this thing around on a cart and take it to your classrooms. And so um, I, she decided that she preferred to use this and push this cart around with this, basically this TV on it versus just learning how to read Braille and carry around like a smaller book. Um, so I feel like in a way she didn't want to read Braille because she felt like it was her standing out. Um, but I'm like thinking, I was like, you don't think pushing this big cart around with this TV thing on it is making you not stand out. Um, so it was just, I just think it's interesting. And I think for me, Um, I think it is partially personality. I think that I've always kind of been, um, I've always, I guess, been willing to be a little bit more vulnerable and be the oddball because I was also like super, I was super nerdy. So like when you talk about not paying attention, Nick, I was kind of like almost the opposite and I would be the person you count like a brown noser um, because I was like super nerdy, always raising my hand, um, interacting with the teacher, making sure that like, um, you know, I, I also got, you know, really pretty, really good grades, like not to brag, but just to kind of emphasize that I was just like a really nerdy brown noser type of kid in school. And so I put all of my energy and effort into focusing on school, which basically it removed me. I like, I didn't really have like a high, like a really big social circle. Um, I didn't really have many friends. 
Um, so in a way, I actually alienated myself a little bit from all the other kids who were more focused on, hey, like, what are we doing this weekend? And um, like, hey, like, who do you think is cute and all of these things? So like, I didn't participate in most of those conversations, but I was always kind of like the bookworm. Um, and I had always been like that. And like, I remember being like seven, eight years old, like girl over the summer, and I would spend my summer days just reading reading, reading, reading. And I had to be actually like, I would not go outside. So I actually remember like my mom forcing me to go outside. She was like, you can keep reading if you want, but you're going to take a blanket and you're going to go sit outside at least and get some sun. Yeah. Yeah. They, I had a CCTV like for high school, but there was a room I had to go to. I think they were smart enough to realize if they put it on a cart, I'd have shoved it down the nearest flight of stairs. So. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't something that they were going to do with me. Like here, take this with you. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, and, and that's the thing. Like when it came to like math, the teacher was always calling on me because it used to be like in geometry sophomore year, the teacher was always like asking questions as far as multiplication problems. Like what's this times this? And I can multiply any two two digit numbers in my head faster than anybody could do it on a calculator. So within two weeks, he'd just say, Nick, Nick, you know, and they'd be like, all right. And I mean, there were times where I actually did two multiply two different three digit numbers in my head. So I think part of it was just, he wanted to see what I could do, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, but I read so slow that it'd take me so much longer to do the average assignment. It just, I just, just didn't consider it worth my while. It's like, I already spend like six to eight hours in school. I'm not going to come home and spend four or five hours doing homework. So that's the way I personally looked at it. So before we go on, because I do want to like continue with this education path, like typically I try to get some people to talk about like any promotions and stuff. So like before the end of the podcast, so people don't just shut it off. They actually get to hear it. So you've got your own podcast now. And what is it called? I do. It's called Not Your Average Goat, G-O-A-T. Uh, It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and it's a show that I started last year in 2022, and my mission is all about celebrating all the shapes, sizes, and colors of diversity as well as adversity by creating a space for vulnerable and authentic conversations, and I'm really trying to have conversations on critical topics like disabilities, mental health, LGBTQ plus experiences, um, suicide, alcoholism, and really trying to dismantle the stigma and the prejudice that exists in society. And so the format of the show is part, it is an interview style, but it's part an exploration of personal journeys and then kind of part a critical dialogue on like these really important topics that most people still today are very, they're very not willing to talk about because they're afraid of backlash or afraid of being judged for their experiences. When in reality, if people were more open about talking about their experiences, it would make it more normal. And not only that, but other people who have had very similar or analogous experiences would hear this and they would feel related to, they would feel seen, they would feel heard. 
Um, so it can also be inspirational if people listen to these episodes and they're like, oh my gosh, like I went through the same thing as a kid or, oh my gosh, like I also struggled with alcohol and I was so afraid to tell anyone because I thought people were going to shame me. Um, so that's really what I'm trying to do with the show. Um, we're currently on season two. Um, I'm actually about to release episode six of season two, um, in a couple of days, And, you know, there's been so many incredible people on there talking about their stories, um, you know, talking about their their lived experiences with bipolar disorder, um, their lived experiences being someone who identifies as polyamorous. So just so many different topics. Um, So if you're one interested in kind of like personal stories and journeys um, and feeling interested in contributing to helping us break down these stigmas and these judgment barriers that exist in society and helping to make topics like these not taboo anymore, then I definitely encourage you to give it a listen. And my website is notyouraveragegoat.org. Yeah, that's that's part of the reason why I do this segment too, because the group that we belong to on Facebook, the number of people that it just sounds like they've just flat out given up. And it's like, you know, that's why I want people like you on here telling your story and stuff like that. So they can say oh okay so i'm not the only person that's had to deal with this you know and these are things i can do and you know just things of that nature so uh so you ended up doing good in school and you ended up going to college i'm assuming since you started looking at colleges I did. I went to, um, that was actually an interesting journey, but I ended up going to a local school about 30, 45 minutes away from home. Um, and that's actually where my husband and I met. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I got my degrees in communications and English. Um, that itself was a journey too. I actually started as a theater major. Um, and then I moved to education thinking I was going to be a high school um, English teacher. Um, and then I finally landed on communications in English, thinking that I wanted to go into a writing field, maybe journalism. Um, And one of my first jobs, I was actually working for a publishing agency, writing magazine articles and interviewing small business owners about their their passions and how they started the business and and things like that. And I really loved that. But I ended up transitioning a bit. So um, I moved into a space where I was writing advertisements for TV and radio. And then I moved into kind of more of the digital marketing space where I started working on campaigns on like Facebook and Google um, and like doing like email campaigns and um, something called search engine optimization. So helping websites rank on Google for different keywords. Um, And so I've kind of, you know, stayed in that digital space um, now and I've been, you know, I'm like 12 years into my career. Um, But, you know, I love marketing. Um, I love you know, they're kind of part of the reason why I kind of transitioned from like the journalism space, even though I loved it and I love storytelling. Um, and thankfully today that the, my podcast is kind of like a nice outlet for still being able to participate in storytelling and interviewing. Oh, definitely. Um, but what I, what really for me, I'm, I'm an equally creative and analytical person, which is something you don't always find. So it's really funny, Nick, when you're talking about, hey, like the teacher kept calling on me because I was faster than the calculator and multiplying, um, you know, two digit by two digit numbers, I was actually the very same way. So I feel like for us visually impaired people, it's kind of like one of our superpowers. Um, And I actually, I was told at times that I was no longer allowed to participate in certain math games because I was just like (laughs) making the other kids feel bad. 
Um, but to say that I'm very analytical as well as creative. And so for me, when I was writing, like, for instance, like these TV and radio spots, like back in 2011, 2012, um, I had no way of knowing who was listening to them and what impact they were having. Because back then, today you have much more sophisticated technology where you can measure these things. But back then, there really was no way to know. So like, okay, I wrote this ad, um, it went up on this radio station. Like, what did it do? Did people buy the product? Yeah. Um, how many people listened to it? And so for me, that was very frustrating. And so that was why I originally moved more into the digital space where you could track, you could track everyone who was clicking on your ad, making it to your website, um, taking some kind of action. And so that was really great because then I got to kind of marry like still writing advertisements with also kind of looking at more of like the data behind it too. Yeah, yeah. That's, I don't know, my brother and I both have degrees in economics and stuff. So definitely understand the analytical thing. But what's funny is the way they used to do things as far as tracking advertisements is they used to do a lot of advertising through mail and so they kept track of colors like what color is the card that we send out to people uh like colors regions like demographics all that kind of thing it's like okay well this specific demographic responds to a yellow card but not the red ones or you know and that's how they used to track what worked <laughs> like in that I, I mean i can't imagine like being one of the people that had to analyze that kind of information instead of having it digitally tracked. Yeah. And thankfully today, even direct mail, so sending out postcards or flyers, like even that has become more sophisticated in terms of being able to track it. Because now, for instance, you can put a QR code on a postcard and then someone, when they get it, can just scan the QR code on their phone. And then that'll take you to a link or a website that actually has tracking on the back end. So people can actually see, I sent out this postcard. Uh, person from this address clicked on it and now they're on my website and now they bought a new coat or whatever it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely interesting. Um, I don't know. A lot of people don't think of somebody being really visually impaired as being good at marketing. So did you have any challenges with that? I will say that. So most of my challenges from my disability came from the technology part. So when you're doing marketing, there's a lot of different platforms that you work with. So from like the analytics perspective, there's a platform called Google Analytics that you use to evaluate your website traffic to see how many people are coming to your website, how long they're staying on your website. Are they coming from a mobile device or from a desktop? Are they coming from social media? Are they coming from email? Um, and so there's platforms like that. There's also the ad platforms that I would use. So like Facebook ads. Um, and so the thing is, is that back in the day and a lot of these platforms, I would run into accessibility issues. Um, and so like I would try to do my job and then I would, I would hit a roadblock and I would have to ask for assistance in terms of being able to do it in real time, just being able to take care of what I was trying to take care of, you know, hey, can you come over here and hit this button for me? Um, you know, my screen reader isn't recognizing it. Um, also, you know, this other button, it's not labeled, it just says button. Uh, which is very frustrating. And I still see that today. The And so what I learned, you know, I've always been someone, thankfully, who was very comfortable with self-advocacy um, and standing up for myself and speaking up for myself. And so what I would do is I would actually send messages. So I would reach out to Google or I would reach out to Facebook and say, hey, 
your platform is not accessible and I cannot use it with my screen reader. Um, you need to send this to your product team and have them fix it. And so in most cases, I wouldn't always hear back from them, but I would, you know, a couple days later, check log into the platform and then suddenly things would be working. Um, so I would say from my, from my disability perspective, that was kind of like one of the biggest hurdles that I've run into. And even today I sometimes run into it, but it's definitely very, very, um, very few and far between compared to earlier on in my career. Um, but what I will tell you that is something that's been challenging because, you know, thinking something that I try to do with my show is, um, understanding and highlighting all the different like I said, shape, sizes, and colors of diversity, because there are many layers and intersections of diversity, even within a single person. And so for me, obviously, you can tell that I am a female, I'm a cisgender female, um, but I'm also a female of color as well. And so I will say that in, a, in the marketing space that historically, um, today looks much better, but historically was dominated by males. Uh, that was very difficult for me. And I remember one of my earlier jobs, I learned that um, one, uh, a male counterpart that I was working with, we were basically doing the same job, that he was making 40% more than I was. And that did not set, uh, set well with me. Um, I was very angered, very frustrated because I had been a high performer. Um, I had the data to show it. And I remember going and basically, you know, I didn't call out that I knew how much this person made, but I remember going into my VP's office and saying, hey, I want to raise, like, this is everything that I've done since I got here. And basically I got, you know, okay, we'll think about it. Um, I, after that point, you know, didn't really hear anything. So I went and actually got an advanced certificate in what's called search engine marketing. So search engine marketing is kind of like a mixture of SEO. So trying to help websites rank on Google organically, but then it also incorporates this thing called paid search where you can actually pay and bid on keywords so that you show up at the top of search results. And so I got this advanced degree um, thinking was, okay, I'm gonna invest in myself. I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna have even more things to tell my VP about why I should get a raise. So I did, I came back and I was like, hey, I got, I just get this advanced certificate. I can start doing more, um, give me more projects. And they were basically like, no. So I got really frustrated. And so I actually started looking for another job, went on vacation while I was on vacation, actually got an offer letter for a salary 40% higher than what I was currently making. And so I came back from vacation, went into my VP's office, scheduled a meeting with her. And she, as soon as I walked in, she was like, okay, so I was able to get you um, like a 5% raise. And I was like, oh, well, that's great. Um, thank you for doing that. It's kind of too late now. You know, I just accepted a new offer. Um, and so that's just been one time. And, you know, I am also just personally a very, when it comes to ethics and morals and kind of just social justice, like I'm very black and white which sometimes can be, you know, one of my weaknesses, because for me, sometimes it can be very hard for me if I feel very strongly about something to listen authentically to someone else's perspective. Um, but that's just one thing for me where I was like, this is wrong, just because I'm a female, I'm a person of color, and I was slightly younger, I was like, that doesn't mean that I should be being paid 40% less. And I am not going to continue to work for a company that doesn't value my worth. Um, and my and and basically um, pay me based on my merit and my my performance. And so um, I'll say that that's been something that's been challenging. Um, and throughout my career, I haven't necessarily had as 
um, I guess, clear cut examples of me, of there being inequities for me, but there's always, you know, I've always worked in spaces where there's been more men um, than me. And so um, we just like not having, always having that representation and seeing females in leadership positions um, has sometimes been a challenge for me as well, but I've been um, luckier later in my career to have the, the representation there and um, be able to progress to a pretty, pretty good spot. Yeah, that's something I personally never understood. It's one of those things, if somebody can do the job and they're doing good at the job, then what, what's the problem? You know, it's I, it's just something I never understood myself. I mean, and I had a job as a contractor at an army base where I was working as a contractor for the uh, civilian government there. And it's like, man, these people are getting stupid amount of money with stupid benefits and I'm getting nothing. And yet when they have stuff, they can't figure it out. They bring it to me. <laughs> it's like, how's that fair? But no, that, that definitely be frustrating, especially when you're putting up the same numbers or better numbers than somebody else. I can definitely understand the frustration with that. Yeah. And I will also just speak to in general, um, you know, disclosing about my disability, is something that anytime I apply for new work earlier in my career, it would be something that I would literally wait until they say, okay, we're going to schedule you for an interview. Because at that point, you know, before COVID, you were going in person and doing these interviews. So I was like, okay, like, I don't want to show up and just have people thinking that I'm, you know, I've been, you know, people who don't know me, um, you know, I've been accused of like being high or on drugs because I can't <laughs> look directly at you. And it just kind of looks like I'm just staring up in space, like in my own little world. Um, so like, you know, I, I would always say, okay, you know, thank you. I'm really excited for the interview. Just want to let you know that I do have a visual impairment so that no one, you know, thinks that I'm being distracted or, you know, or anything yeah. like that. But um, so that was something that, you know, I felt very, you know, insecure about, especially earlier on my career, because, you know, I was still young, I didn't have as many years under my belt. So it's like, hey, what can I lean back on? And then I'm going to tell these people I have a disability, you know, that if, if they don't already tell me that I have the interview, it could be a really great, easy out for them to say, yeah, I think we're going to go with another candidate and bring them in instead. But if they already tell you, you have the interview, and then you tell them you have a disability, that's a clear violation of the American Disabilities Act. So that, well, that, you know, I would... and that depends. <laughs> that depends, though, too, because they can just say, oh, we think that, you know, this person over here is better qualified, you know, so. Well, yeah, but I mean, if they give you, if they say, hey, I want to bring you in for an interview, and then you say, hey, I have a disability, and then they're like, oh, well, never mind. Oh, um, yeah, 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 in that yeah. situation, definitely. Yeah, so, but I will tell you that as I got more years under my belt, and I was able to kind of build some of that confidence, um, I started disclosing earlier and earlier on in the process, because I began to realize that if I disclosed early on, and I got a really good vibe from a company, that meant that that was the type of company that I wanted to work for. And kind of on the opposite side, if I got a really bad vibe from a company by disclosing about my disability, that told me it didn't matter how much money they offered me or how great the benefits were, I did not want to go and work for that company. Well, that's like the last job I had. It was a company called the Arcanum Group out of Denver, Colorado. And I was on the phone with them doing a phone interview. And like toward the beginning, I said, look, I understand by law, you're not allowed to ask me anything about my disability. And I said, do you mind if I speak bluntly? And the guy said, go for it. And I said, fuck that. I was like, you need to know. So if you got questions, you ask. And, and he did. And 
you know, he hired me. So, but it doesn't always work out that way either. You know, some companies aren't, I mean, he was, he was one of the greatest bosses I ever had. He was awesome. But yeah, it doesn't always work. And it's catch 22. You hear people's approaches all the time and some people don't say anything about it until after they've gotten hired, you know, Mm -hmm. and other people are like us that are upfront with it. Like, I want you to know. Because if there's going to be a problem, I'd rather not work for you. Yeah, I've, I've heard of people not disclosing until after they get hired. Um, for me, that's always been a challenge because I want to make sure that the organization knows that I need these a certain accommodations. And if it's not part of my offer letter, and if I don't say it, hey, I'm signing this offer letter and I'm letting you know that if you bring me on, I need these accommodations. I feel like there would be there would be much more of an up he'll climb that if you waited until after and then you're like hey by the way I need you to give me these accommodations and they're like well we don't have budget for that um so I mean which is a really crappy thing to say regardless but um so for me that was kind of my rationale for disclosing before or at least when I got the offer letter yeah it's like I said everybody's got their own approach for it their own reasoning Mm -hmm. behind it it's just I'd, I'd rather be up front because for i understand why people wait because they've been discriminated against and not been given a chance so i get that for me i feel like me personally i'm the one being dishonest if i if i'm not upfront about it because it's like okay how many people do you know with eyesight that have degrees in economics most people who can see have trouble with economics i can't see and i still got a degree in it so mm-hmm. for me that's one of those things that it it that should make it stand out that i'm i can adapt so so tell us uh more about yourself uh do you and your husband have kids or is it just you guys solo you know we do not have kids, uh, human kids. We have two fur babies and um, <laughs> <laughs> who they, I mean, I treat them like my, like my kids. Um, so I have, we have two dogs. They're, they're both girls. Their names are Bailey and Charlie. Um, Bailey is a Chihuahua mix and Charlie is a Beagle mix. Um, Bailey turned five in May and Charlie actually just turned six last month in September. And um, they're both uh, adopted. So Bailey, we adopted from a local foster when she was eight weeks old. And Charlie, we actually adopted. So when the pandemic hit, it was nearly impossible to get a dog here in the U.S. that was under 30 pounds. So we, Bailey is, Bailey as a Chihuahua mix, um, she's like 19, 20 pounds. And we kind of fell in love with the smaller dog. And originally coming from a family where we had a lot of like labs and bigger dogs, I was like, no, I want a big, I want a big dog. Um, I don't want a tiny dog. And so we found Bailey's picture online on this local foster and she looked like a little lab puppy. And even today she looks like a little lab puppy, but little did we know she's actually a chihuahua. Um, her mom, she's a Chihuahua mix. So her mom we met is actually a beagle. And so we're thinking that her dad might've been a Chihuahua lab, but she never grew larger than 19, 20 pounds. And so we fell in love with small dogs. And then during the pandemic, everyone and their mother wanted a small dog. So we could not find one here in the U S. And so we came across this other local organization who actually goes to South Korea and finds stray dogs on the streets or who have been abandoned and brings them back here to the U.S., gets them vaccinated, and then adopts them out. 
And so that's how we found our Charlie. She had been found like in an abandoned house somewhere in South Korea. She was pregnant. Um, she gave birth and then it was discovered that she had a heart murmur. So they immediately brought her back here to the U.S. They had to separate her from her puppies early, um, give her surgery and then get her vaccinated. Um, and then we, we found her and we adopted her. So, um, but yeah, they are, they're essentially our kids. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because you think about, especially with Bailey, who we've had since she was like seven or eight weeks old, and it's like up every two two hours to take them out, just like you'd be up every two hours to feed the, the kid. Then you have to treat them obedience and how to behave. Um, and so it's like almost kind of like raising a kid. Uh, parents with actual human kids might disagree, but I think that there's definitely some transferable experiences that, that happen there. Um, but yeah, so it's awesome. We live in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and I've been, like I said, I grew up in Maryland. Um, and then after after college, which I went to in, um, in Baltimore, um, I just kind of, from my, my jobs that I kept getting, just kind of slowly kept moving closer to Virginia. And then back in 2015 um, is kind of like when we officially moved into Virginia and we bought a house um, in 2020 during the pandemic when the, the, the rates were so low. We got like a, we were so lucky to get like a really great rate um, on a condo. And so we bought it um, that, and where we've been for, well, since then. And um, we, uh, I, uh, we are so fortunate to kind of live in Virginia, which for those of you who don't know, when you think of California, like you think of wine country, but Virginia actually has like nearly 300 wineries and they actually have a handful of like breweries and cideries too and distilleries. Um, but there are a lot of wineries um, across the state here. And so we're really lucky. And I, I think I alluded to earlier on in the conversation, like I really, I love wine. Um, so I love going to wineries and kind of wine tasting. Um, and there's, I'm also a big foodie too. So um, trying out new restaurants is something that I really love, enjoy doing, and then football. So um, I'm a huge Baltimore Ravens fan, have been, was bred that way um, from like a kid, or at least, you know, 96 is when they, they started. But um, I, I'm a pet for like season tickets to the Baltimore Ravens. So we go to nearly all the home games, um, which are just, they're so much fun. Um, and ironically, we're actually so um, I'm not sure how 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 closely you follow football, Nick, or if at all, but um, some of the teams get to play international games. I think it's now five teams a year get to play international games like in Munich. And um, I think they're going to try doing one in Dublin next year, but um, a few of them play in London. And so the Ravens actually are playing this year in London. And so we're actually going to go for like a long weekend and go see the Ravens play in London. And ironically, it's going to be our first away game. We've never gone to an away game here in the States. And so we're going to London for our first away game. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. You can't just go to Georgia when they play the Falcons. You got to go across the ocean. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was because of my eyesight or what, but I never really got too much into uh football and stuff like that i i fo- i followed them for a while like the chicago bears like when because i'm an illinois boy so you know most people around here like the bears and so i followed them when buddies did and i liked them and the browns because they were just the worst teams that had the best fans <laughs> you know and then 
you you should know because the one time the Browns had a good team, they ended up selling them some. What where where did they get sold to? <laughs> they they yeah. got sold to Baltimore, where they won a Super Bowl. <laughs> I can't I can't share in that love with you, Nick, because the Browns are in our division and they're 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 not liked by the Ravens fans. <laughs> well, guess what? Your your Ravens team that won the Super Bowl was the Browns. <laughs> Well, yeah, but they didn't let us keep the name, so we changed. So yeah, yeah I know. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, <laughs> they never won a Super Bowl. They finally get a good team, and the owner sells them to Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh man, but yeah, just just the fans, like, because I'm a Cub fan, so it's one of those things. I like loyal fans because your team sucks for so many years, and yet you're still dedicated to them. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's like the Washington fans, everyone who felt, I mean, if you can keep track of their name, I think they're now called the Commanders. My husband likes to call them the Commies. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, that fan base, ironically, they're so dedicated, even though they were so bad for so long. Oh, is that the old Redskins or whatever? Yeah, Redskins yeah. and then the Washington football team and now the Commanders. Jeez, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> 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 but uh yeah so oh that's cool that's definitely cool uh like i said i don't know if it was my eyesight and i just couldn't like keep up with what was going on on the field or what but you know i i just i never really got into it it is it is kind of hard to um see everything on that's going on especially like if you're watching it on tv so i do rely a lot on the announcers to kind of describe okay so and so hands it off to running back so and so they go 10 yards all right so i do like i do rely a lot of like the audio descriptions um a lot but i just i really enjoy it like my fam like my entire like mom said to the family were all Ravens fans so I kind of grew up like everyone watching Ravens football on Sunday and they were just so passionate about it and so like just being a Baltimore or like a Maryland native like I just you know was born a Ravens fan almost I mean I was I was born before the Ravens started um but yeah. that's just kind of you know it was like bred into me and then in 2000 they won the Super Bowl and then 2012 they won a Super Bowl again and so it's just um and then now, um, you know, having like a quarterback like Lamar Jackson, who's just so, you know, I think he really helped to transform the game because before then, you know, you had Michael Vick, of course, who was like a, he was mobile a bit, but after Michael Vick, you really didn't have a quarterback who was, you know, super mobile and could actually run away from defenders and, you know, get 50 yards um, running, you know, actually running and not handing it off or throwing it. So um, I think it's just, it's definitely helped revitalize some of the energy, um, specifically for the Ravens fans. Yeah. I, that's one guy that I liked and it was just like, dude, why do you have to get in trouble? Cause Michael Vick, like you said, he can, he can throw, he can hand off and the dude could run with the ball too. So I always thought that was interesting. Like me, as far as like sports and it's already considered the most boring sport in the world, but baseball. <laughs> Like lis listening to a game announced on the radio, there was just something about that I always loved. The announcers for radio were just so good at describing everything that it was it was like being able to mentally picture it for me. So oh. even even when we I'd be watching the game with buddies, like here at the house, 
I'd turn the volume to the TV off and turn the radio on and listen to the radio announcers. But I wish I could share in that joy. I I think for that reason, I was never able to, well, not just for that reason, I've actually been in person to baseball games and I, I think it just is, it moves so slowly for me and it's just so like if the games could go on for hours. And I think for me, I just, I don't know. I definitely give people like you kudos because I, I actually wish I could be more into baseball, um, especially because, you know, also being from Maryland, um, the Baltimore Orioles um, are doing like really, really well. And so um, it's just never been something that I've been able to get into. And see, I like the most boring game ever, a pitcher's duel. Like a game that ends one to nothing. That's my favorite game to like. Oh sit my and, gosh! Like what? <laughs> I I don't I don't want to sit and listen to a game where every other person's hitting a home run. That's not like a pitching duel is what I like. That's what I think's fascinating. Oh, wow! <laughs> because just the skill that it would take to like be able to do that. That's what impresses me. So <laughs> yeah, I'm the most boring guy ever when it comes to sports like that. <laughs> hey, well, it's not boring for you. That's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. So what else can you tell us about yourself? Um, well, I, um, I grew up actually um, the oldest of seven girls. So a huge family, always a lot of drama and one bathroom. So (laughs) definitely a lot of chaos, like never like a boring moment in the house. Um, You know, me and my, my sisters, uh, there were many times I think growing up that we were at odds with each other. Um, Today though, like we're, we're really close. um, Some of us. So there was actually, so my mom um, was married twice. So um, my dad, um, there's four of us with my, my mom and my dad. And then, um, my younger sisters, there's three of them who have the same dad too. So, um, you know, I, as the oldest, I was always kind of like the, the super responsible one. I babysat a lot. Um, you know, I always felt the pressure to kind of be the role model, um, for my sisters and, um, you know, when my younger sisters came around, um, because there was such a huge age gap, they always felt like, and even still today, because they're still, I think, gosh, I think my youngest sister, hold on, if I can do math correctly, um, I think she's 19. So like even today, like they still kind of feel like nieces to me because there's just such a big gap um, between us. And like, you know, being being in your teens slash early 20s is very different from, you know, being in your mid 30s. And so like, you're just in very different parts, points of your life, and you care about very different things. And so um, there was kind of like that interesting dynamic as well. But, um, but it's always been, it's been nice, because you kind of have when you have such a big family, you always have built in friends, in a way. And so because I was such a person who alienated myself, because like I said, I was such a brown noser and a nerd when it came to school. Um, it was always nice, like even when, even if when we were growing up, we weren't super close, um, you know, now, even though I don't get to see them all the time, like I, I all my sisters are so great um, and we're all very supportive of each other. Um, and they're all giving me a ton of nieces and nephews. So like I literally have two sisters right now um, expecting one, expecting a boy in December and another one, a girl in January. So this is gonna put me at a total of, I think, I have three nieces and nephews on my husband's side. So he only has one brother, thankfully. Um, And then my three sisters who are moms, this will put me at two plus three plus two 
is seven. So I'll have a total of 10 nieces and nephews. Um, and my younger wow. three sisters have yet to even have kids. So, <laughs> yeah. See, it was different for me because my brother and I are five years apart. I, I was the baby of the entire family, both sides of the family. And so we were too far apart to be close and too like close together in years to be close, you know, because mm -hmm. I was just the nuisance that wanted to go with my big, big brother. And, you know, he was just the jerk that would never let his little brother go with him, you know? Yeah. And I mean, my mom, finally, my parents, unfortunately for us were in antiques. And so my mom had this iron ladle that they used to use for melting down lead to make bullets. And that's what she used to use to break up our fist fights. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it would just like turn into a brawl i mean it was ridiculous oh my goodness <laughs> but hey you'll have that yeah well that's you one know? thing i'm not looking forward to if i if i do have kids so my my husband is one of three boys from the same dad his dad is one of five boys from the same father. And then I think his grandfather is like one of seven boys. And, um, you know, the, the, the sex of the baby always lives on the male line. So um, you guys decide whether to deliver the, the Y or the X chromosome. And so it's pretty, there's a pretty, very, very strong likelihood that we will have boys. And um, that's one thing, you know, I have never, I didn't grow up with boys, obviously, because I just had sisters. Um, I do have nephews, but um, that's one thing I'm like, not necessarily looking forward to the boys or like the fist fights and just always just also, um, you know, at least for my nephews, just how gross boys are especially when you're little and probably actually more gross when you become teenagers but um yeah <laughs> well invest invest in an antique iron ladle that's used for melting down bullets because that's <laughs> that's the same because my mom she'd she'd be like because me and my brother were big you know by by eighth grade i was six foot and i had to cut like four or five pounds to make 167 for state and wrestling and so Granted, I was six one by my freshman year of high school, and I never grew an inch since then. But we, my brother and I, were both six one, and so she, she knew that I'd never intentionally hit her. But if we're like sitting there fist fighting and stuff, I'm not going to see her if she steps in. So she just grabbed that thing and start whacking the hell out of us with it. Oh it's just like, I mean, we'd go from throwing fists to hugging each other instantly. We're good. We're good. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It was just hilarious, but so is that something you guys are planning on or just if it happens, it happens? Happens. Um, you know, I think we've definitely started thinking a little bit more intentionally about it. Um, like I said, we've been together for 15 years and, um, you know, for me coming from a big family, I've never really wanted my own big family. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely want kids, but I don't think I want more than two. But I've always also gone back and forth between the idea of having a biological child and then maybe waiting another 10 years and maybe adopting two or three kids when I have, you know, um, you know, superfluous finances where I can actually give back and help give a home to children who may not have it. Um, I've always felt a little, um, I guess, there's always been like a part of me that has really felt for those children. Um, one, because you see a lot of siblings who are forced to separate. And I just, you know, thinking about my siblings, even though I had a lot of them and they got on my nerves a lot as a kid, 
um, it would have been really bad if we had to have separated. And um, we didn't necessarily grow up in the best household either. And so there were sometimes where like social services got involved. So like that was actually a big fear at times, whether, um, you know, we potentially could have been separated and taken from the house, you know, like we probably should have been taken from the house at certain times, but, um, you know, if that had happened, there would have been a big fear if we had been separated. So I think for me, I always feel for those children. Um, yeah. and so. No, that's, that's, that's definitely something a lot of people don't even think about when it comes down to it. You know, and I mean, I, I thought about it because like with me, there's a chance that I'll pass on my eye disease. And so that's something I've not wanted. But, you know, it is what it is. Is is that a chance that like with uh, your eye disease, is there a chance of you passing that on? Potentially. So the interesting thing is that even though RP is genetic, um, I went to Johns Hopkins University doctors from like the time I was six months until I was about 10 um, biannually. And they were ever never able to trace it back to any genetic connection on my dad's side or my mom's side. So it's, it's like a very interesting thing for me and my sister to have both had it, um, which leaves a few things to be questioned, um, which I won't go into um, right here, but yeah. Um, it definitely, I mean, yeah, there's definitely always the, 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 the chance that it could happen. I think for me, I don't, I don't see that as a fear that I'm, I, I would make, I would let myself make a decision on because I think that, yes, I think there would definitely be challenges. And yes, like I, I would cross my fingers and send vibes to whatever, you know, being has power in this world to prevent that. But um, because, you know, you definitely always want the best for your children and you want them to be able to have better lives than yourself. I think though, if by some small chance it did happen, I think I'd be okay. And I think that this child would be set up really, really well because they'd have such a strong, what I hope, sorry, I'm like, I'm like really um, talking myself up, but um, I think they'd have a really strong like um, example and be able to actually see, because part of it, right, is the, the exposure and the representation. And if you don't see blunt people who are blind or low vision in having successful careers or being able to function in society, then you don't think that that's possible, right? Because you're talking about the Facebook group and you're like, all these people have given up. Well, I wonder how many of them have had a role model or have had that exposure or representation in their lives. And so I think for me, I, will, I think that would be reassurance for me, just knowing that I would be their mother um, and I would be there to kind of show them the ropes and show them that things are possible. So. Yeah, that def that definitely be a positive. Because, I mean, there, there's yeah. a woman that's in the group that messaged me. She's in her 60s. And she never learned how to cook. And mm. I've, I've done a couple, like, basic cooking, like, YouTube videos. Being like, you can, like, if you make it yourself, it is 10 times better you know, then going and getting it somewhere, getting it pre-made, whatever. And so there's a lot of things that people just never realize they're capable of doing. I mean, yeah, there's adjustments that have to be made when you're cooking. You know, you obviously have to listen to the food instead of being able to see if it's browned or not, you know, but, you know, it's, 
that that's definitely an advantage and especially since you are a good example somebody who did good in school you know that's the best advice i can give one of my kids is don't be me (laughs) 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 don't be like me you know yeah yeah, I, I, I hope so. And, um, you know, I actually volunteer for the NFB of Virginia. And um, last year, I participated in this program called RISE, which we work with high school and college students who are blind or visually impaired and, you know, really help teach them life skills like advocacy and how to find a job and interview and things like that. And so I really enjoyed doing that. And I think part of what drives me is knowing that I never had a role model. I have no idea where this like internal discipline came from for myself. But um, you know, I've, I've always wanted to be that thing that I never had um, for other people. And so that's really been positive for me. Um, but I think one thing that we need to think about is that, you know, back in the day, or even if you're in very rural areas, I've, I've come across this today, parents oftentimes don't have resources. And so if they're, if they have a child with a disability, whether it's a, a visual disability or any type of disability, um, they don't know how to handle it. And they, they kind of keep their child in a bubble and they don't teach them how to cook and they don't teach them how to adapt to the normal world. And I will say that, um, not that my, I think my, my mom did teach me some things, but I think for me, because I was the oldest and I didn't have the best parent, I was forced to kind of be that parent at times. So I, I remember one time when my mom was pregnant with one of my sisters, she was like, you know, morning sickness all day, like in bed. Um, I was like 10 years old and like my sisters and I had to eat. So I had to learn how to basically teach myself like how to make spaghetti. And it was just kind of like this canned thing. It was like a box of noodles and like a jar of pasta. But, um, like I remember like that was the first thing I had ever cooked and I had to learn how to do it and how to like operate the stove and turn it on and like watch for the water to boil. And like, of course my mom was like telling, she was like, okay, turn on the stove when the water starts to bubble, like you hear a sound, then you pour in the pasta and then you wait for it. And then you like, you taste the pasta and see if it's soft, but um, like, and also like laundry too. Like I was just because like my mom was a single mom, most of the time, um, you know, I would just kind of was that second parent and I was forced to despite or in spite of my disability had to do some things. Um, And not that I think that I should have had to be in that role, but I will say that you know, long-term, it definitely helped me develop some life skills that others may not have the opportunity to develop. Well, I had, I had an amazing dad. I had amazing uncles and stuff like that. So like for me, when it came to doing stuff, it was like, your eyes are broke, your back ain't get in there, you know? (laughs) And and, and that's the way it was. I mean, bailing hay, digging like trenches, chopping wood, whatever the case was you know you can figure it out you know like i can remember split wood with my uncle and his log splitter ended up i I don't know what went wrong with it or whatever but we hauled it back to his garage and he handed me a split mall and i was like i can't see and he's like oh you'll figure it out if you want paid and so <laughs> and i mean i <laughs> and i mean he wasn't being a jerk it was one of those things like there's no reason for you not to be able to do this you know and yeah and I, I mean, obviously I figured it out. So, I mean, that really benefited me in a lot of ways growing up. It hurt in other respects because I always figured I'd have a physical labor job. And then it was a rude awakening to find out that companies wouldn't hire me for such things because of insurance reasons. You know, they didn't care if I was capable of doing that. It was just 
the idea of insurance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I definitely had the benefit of being like being expected to learn how to do stuff. So, and a lot of people don't have that, you know, there's guys I've met that are adults and, you know, it, and it's not me judging them or knocking them. So if by some chance they hear this, I don't want them to think I am, but their mom shaves their face for them. And like when I was 12 and I had to start shaving, you know, if I started letting it go too much, my dad would say, you either shave or I'm going to hold you down and do it myself. <laughs> you know, it was mm-hmm. just a, two completely different approaches, you yeah. know? And I think people get used to being enabled and it's not just people who have a disability. I mean, you parents can enable a fully abled individual. You know, they could, they can continue to throw, okay, I lost my job, mom, dad. All right, we're gonna, you, you can come live with us. Um, okay, I don't have any money now. I can't afford food. Okay, we'll buy your food. Um, you know, I can't afford my car insurance and my gas now. Okay, we'll give you money for gas. And like, even if that person ends up finding a job or moving out, you know, sometimes those parents still continue to just finance them and enable them. And um, so I think that there's definitely different situations and it has nothing to do, I think, with necessarily, you know, having a disability. Um, So I don't want people to think that only people with disabilities are at risk of being enabled. Um, But yeah, I do think that people get accustomed to having things done for them. And unfortunately, the parents do it and they don't challenge their kids and they don't try to push them. And oftentimes it's, it's, it's not, it's not a bash on them. They just probably didn't have the resources to know how to raise a child with a disability. Well, and they think they're helping. They think they're assisting. Yeah. And it's, it's no different in high school. There were kids I went to school with that got jobs and paid for their own car and insurance and gas and stuff like that. You know, their parents were like, if you want to drive, that's what you're going to have to do. And there were other kids that were driving to school in brand new trucks or cars. And, you know, like I remember a kid that had a brand new Lexus in high school. And it's just like, dude, like seriously, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's, it is what it is, you know. And I had an old truck that, because I had friends that had licenses, but couldn't drive. Obviously, I wasn't supposed to drive, and but I had this old truck, and I can remember changing the carburetor on it, and, you know, just doing stuff like that to keep it running, and it, it's rewarding when you're able to do stuff like that. That's you so know, cool. And not yeah. have and not have somebody that's just going to go do it for you, you know. But and that's that's even changing now. You know, as far as like the capability to work on your own vehicle, because this was a 1972 truck I had. It was we. It was so rusted, we had to put a four by eight sheet of plywood in the bed just to haul anything. Oh wow! <laughs> but that's also the kind of vehicle that you can work on yourself. You know, it's not like today where you need computer systems to see what's wrong. But mm-hmm. you know, it just just saw such a difference in the types of people that you went to school with, you know, the people that worked on their own stuff and paid for their own stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely, I think it gives people a leg up when they're forced to have to learn how to do stuff for themselves. Yeah. I, I had the same experience when I was in school too. So my, I went to school in a town that was, it was pretty impoverished. 
but we also had uh, an, an army base there. So there were a lot of military families there who lived in that area, but had a decent amount of money. And so for them, like they always had, you know, extra money to just be able to go blow on like luxuries. But then you had a lot of kids too, who barely, their parents barely had any money. So, um, you know, a lot of kids would end up driving their parents' car, or like you said, they would have to, you know, raise $1,500 and go buy a used car and, you know, fix it up and go to um, like the junkyard and find parts and, you know, do it themselves. But then of course you did have like these other kids, um, you know, a lot of like military families who just bought their kid a new convertible on their 16th birthday. And I'm just like, how are you teaching? Like, how is this helping your kid become a better person by just handing them this car? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's just no sense of worth. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you grow up not understanding how things, how much things cost. And I, I think it does an injustice to a lot of kids. What, Like you said, whether they have a disability or not, it's doing them injustice because when they get out on their own, they're just like, oh, wait a minute, it costs this much for that? <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, how am I supposed to afford this? Mm-hmm. So that's definitely, definitely interesting. But so as far as like you traveling and doing these types of vacations with your husband, so far, what's the most interesting place you feel that you've got to go visit? Oh, um, I will say that. So back in 2018, we did, so we've done a handful of kind of road trips around different countries, which is a really great way, I think, to kind of see a country, because oftentimes you'll just fly into a city and then, you know, leave, um, and you don't really explore the rest of the country. So back in 2018, we actually did a road trip around Ireland, and we started in Dublin, spent a couple days there, um, you know, did some of the pub crawls and things like that, and then we drove, um, the Ring of Kerry and went down to um, Killarney and it was just it, and we did like B and B's the entire time. So every every night we were staying at someone else's house, getting a homemade English breakfast every every day. Um, which is I don't know if you've ever if you're familiar with that, but it's like this massive like breakfast. Um, like you're it's like a huge plate with like a bunch of sausage and eggs and tomatoes and um potatoes and um like bacon and it's it's just a it's a huge thing um but just being able to drive around the countryside of Ireland oh my gosh and like for the most part especially around the ring of Kerry like you're on this cliff and you're just overseeing and so I'm very fortunate that I do have some vision because it's just they're just beautiful sights and we just kept pulling over and taking pictures um, over the cliff um, of like these gorgeous sites and like these these hills and all the sheep. There are some so so many sheep there. Um, but the other incredible thing is that the people in Ireland are just the friendliest people I have come across. I think thus far. And I'll tell you this one instance. We were staying at this woman's house. Um, she she was a mother but her kids her kids were grown and adults and out of the house um so she was renting out her you know her extra rooms um as part of the b um b&b and i remember we get there and we're like on day three or four or something like that and we have some laundry like dirty laundry that we need to wash and we saw that in her listing that she allowed her guests to use the washer so it's like okay we saw oh, you're you know you have a washer can we use it she's like sure she showed us where it is 
we went and put our laundry in and then we're like, okay, um, we'll be back in like a couple hours to take care of it. Um, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go get some lunch because we had just driven like two or three hours and we were hungry. So we go out, we eat, we come back. Um, we go up to our room to go get our, like our laundry basket and all of our clothes are folded on our bed. Like she took our clothes from the washer to the dryer, dried them, then took them upstairs and folded them all. And I'll tell you, like, there was some like delicates and like things in there too. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I've never had a complete stranger do something like this for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. No, it's, that's, that's definitely cool that you guys don't just go on a vacation somewhere. You go somewhere to experience it. Because I, I haven't been to a lot of places, but when I was 16, I lived in Romania for two months, and that was a complete immersion into another culture. And at the time, they were actually still communist when I was there. So it, it was just so interesting getting to live with the people. And I don't know as far as like what your experiences have been, but those people had absolutely nothing and yet they were still the happiest people I've ever come across in my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like they had the ability to find happiness in the small things. Yeah. That's a, that's an incredible skill to have. Um, I have not been to Romania yet. I do know that it's still a pretty impoverished country, um, but I do actually work with a handful of Romanians um, in my day job. Um, so our our we have a team in Romania who actually works on kind of manages our website, and so that's one of the things I oversee um, as part of my job is you know making sure that we make updates to our website. So I work with that team all the time, and they're just you know they're very humble people. It's great. Yeah, I I spoke with somebody out of our group um, that's from there. She's actually my age, just a year younger or something like that. And, so she she was well aware of the time period I was there because they actually elected a democratic president while I was there, which oh, was wow. ki- which was kind of a scary time to be there, to be perfectly honest, because you didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> you know, like you didn't know if that guy was actually going to leave office. And then us being like me and the one other kid that I was there with being Americans, it was just like, uh, OK, are we going to be targets? <laughs> you know, like what's yeah. going to happen? But. She said it's just changed so much since they became a democratic nation uh, back then in the 90s. Because she said now there's Starbucks everywhere and, you know, just everything. When I was there, you couldn't even, like, they didn't even have peanut butter when I was there back in 96. So it, it was just, it was really fascinating, like, getting to be there before that change took place. I thought, you know, but... That's really so, cool. So what are some other, like, have you been to Europe, Europe, or Asia? Like, where all have you guys been? So mostly Europe. Um, we had a trip planned to Japan last year, but had to cancel it because they still had their two-week quarantine. But um, another really tr- amazing trip that I loved. So a few years ago, I actually, um, in mid-December, we left and went to Europe, and we did a three-week Christmas market tour around Europe. And so we started in Munich. So Christmas markets are really, really big. Like Christmas is a huge thing in Europe, especially certain countries. Um, And I remember we started in Munich. We flew into Barcelona and then did a connected flight to Munich. And I will, 
when you walk out of airports in the US, you kind of walk out and it's like a like a busy like like a like a um, kiss and ride and you just have like a bunch of cars and buses and stuff like waiting there to kind of like pick up people. When we exited the Munich airport, I literally as soon as you open the door to leave, you step into a Christmas market like it's this magical wonder world of just like vendors with like food and a huge Christmas tree and just like music playing and I was like, what the heck did we just walk into? And I have to tell you, it was just like, the, it was like just such an awesome experience to just exit the airport and immediately be dropped into like this magical world. Um, and so we started in Munich. Um, there were actually several um, Christmas markets in Munich. And then we went to um, Vienna, Austria, Prague. Um, Prague was really, really, really great there. Um, we actually had this drink it was called hot pear brandy um it's so good um basically kind of like a hot pear puree mixed with brandy and probably some other stuff but really really incredible um and then we went to berlin um barcelona and then ended in paris or sorry went berlin paris and ended in barcelona um but that was just an incredible trip, just being able to go around and kind of experience Christmas in all these different cities. And then we were actually in Paris for New Year's. And um, that was really cool. I will say that the one the one thing that let me down is there were no fireworks. And I'm even to this day, um, I'm still like a big kid when it comes to fireworks. I love I love them so much. But um, so we went to this um, part of um, Paris called the um, Sacre Cœur, which is basically you have to, it's like, at the top of a hill, like literally, I think we walked up like 750 steps to get to this thing. Oh, wow. um, and it's just like hundreds upon hundred people just sitting on like steps, like going for probably about a quarter of a mile. Um, and people from like all over, like, I think we were sitting next to people who had just like um, bust in from Amsterdam. So like people come here for new year's and just like, and there's like nothing to see really. It's just, you're counting down sitting there. We, um, we had had like a bottle of bubbly and um, we put it in a backpack and we took like two glasses from like the the B&B that we were staying at and just like poured ourselves like some bubbly in these like water glasses and we're just like sitting in this big crowd of people um, just waiting for it to be midnight. Um, and I remember like as soon as it struck midnight um, and this was like literally like, the last day of 2019, as soon as it struck midnight and became 2020, at least in Europe, the next thing you knew, you have all these drunk guys tossing beer bottles down the steps and you just start hearing like this sh like sh like shower of glass and I was like grab the bottle of bubbly the glasses threw it in the backpack as soon as I could grab my husband's arms and we just bounced like we were like <laughs> it was like it's like it's so disconcerting to have beer bottles tossed at you like they weren't actually throwing it at an individual they were just tossing it because they were drunk and it was midnight and it was New Year's and I was like, wow, like if that's any indication of how, if like any forecasting of how that, that next year was going to go, like there was, it was just like, just thinking about it, like to just have like your first moment of 2020, have beer bottles and glass be thrown at you. Um, and just to kind of think about how that year actually ended up going, uh, it was kind of ironic. Yeah. That, that, oh my gosh, that'd be wild. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're not expecting <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. So well, it, it makes me think like some of those honky tonker hillbilly bars where the stage is surrounded with chicken wire. <laughs> Just, <laughs> how kind of people throwing bottles getting rowdy, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Oh man. So what what else would you 
like to talk about? What what would you have as far as like advice for like th- this is kind of two parts. First, like what would you have for advice for people who are visually impaired? And also like what kind of advice would you have toward or for people that can see when it comes to dealing with people who are visually impaired or blind? I think for people who can who have full sight, um, who interact, or maybe you haven't had the opportunity to interact with people who are blind or low vision, I think just understanding that there are, everything's on a spectrum. So even if you think about ADHD or dyslexia or anything like that, blindness is also on a spectrum and there's different intensities. Some people have no, no vision, no light perception, nothing. And then some people just, um, have to like they can they can they can see a lot of things but maybe they have to use like zoom in slightly to to read print but all of us are considered to be blind and all of us have limitations so i think it's just understanding that everyone's experience is different um and even if someone can see um maybe they can see a decent amount that doesn't mean that they like them using a cane is like them faking or anything like that um so I, I think that that's one thing. And I think, um, you know, especially like when you think about employers, I think realizing that there are many blind people who are succeeding and can contribute to your business. Um, you know, I know a, a someone who's visually impaired who has passed both the, um, the bar as well as the PMP, which is like the project management um, exam, um, which is almost just as hard as the bar exam to become a lawyer. And it's like, that's incredible. Um, that those are two really, really hard exams. And, um, you know, not that it should matter that the person is blind, but she happens to be blind and she passed both of them. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would, I would say. Um, and then I think for people who are blind or visually impaired, um, especially if you haven't had a lot of role models around you, I think just trying to be very intentional and proactive and take the initiative to try to find people in the blind and visually impaired community who have had different walks of life than you. So with the internet, we definitely, like we have access that we have never had before. You can use Facebook groups, you can use LinkedIn. Actually LinkedIn is probably a really, really great place because LinkedIn is a professional network for people who are, you know, um, you know, career people. And so you can literally find a bunch of people who are doing any type of job. Like there are actually fashion designers who are blind. There are lawyers who are blind. Um, and so I think just find intentionally trying to go out and connect with people and finding out like, hey, how did you get here? Tell me what your tips are. Um, you know, can you be my mentor? Like, I think that that's something if you can actually put yourself in a situation and say, hey, I might need a mentor and um, actually be humble enough to ask someone um, to be your mentor, especially if you're willing to put in the work um, on your side. I think that that could be really impactful and valuable um, because we do, Nick, we do. There's so many people out there who are just sitting on a couch who don't try um, and again, not to judge them, but I think, you know, it's, it's sad to think about because there's, everyone has so much potential. You just have to use it and find it. Yeah. And if you don't try, you're never going to know, you know, yeah. it's, it's plus people are not just gonna know you exist and show up at your door and knock on mm-hmm. the door and say, Hey, so yeah, that's, that's 
definitely good advice on both ends of it. So, well, I, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you coming on and talking because you got a, definitely an interesting story to be, to just to begin with. But I got to say, you're the first person I've had on here that's done extensive traveling and things of that nature. So that definitely lets other blind people know, hey, you can go out and do these things. And, you know, there's no reason not to. So definitely a good perspective that's different from the ones I've had before. And like I said, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here, tell your story. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, and if anyone wants to reach out, um, you can, I'm on Facebook. I use Instagram more than I do Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn. I use that pretty frequently. So you can just search my name, Tisha Gillespie, um, which I'm sure you'll have as part of the the name of the episode for people yep. to copy. Um, Cause it's a pretty, it's like, I can spell it out really quickly, but um, you know, that was one thing where, um, you know, firstly, so my maiden name was Collins, which is much easier to spell. And I think anyone can spell Collins without you having to spell it out. But um, <laughs> I was named, T- I was named Tisha. I didn't get to choose my name, of course, which is spelled T-E-I-S-H-A. But then I chose to marry someone with the last name Gillespie, who no one can, if they see it on paper, can't pronounce. And if I say it, they don't know how to spell it. But it's spelled G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E. So it's Gil S P. So that's it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll definitely look her up and don't forget to check out her podcast because it is something I've listened to and subscribed to myself. So not your average goat. It's a good podcast. So uh, thanks again for coming on here. Thank you, Nick. All righty. You take care. Bye. Bye.